Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and gamers of all ages. It is us, the Blood Force Gamers, and I, your host, Game Goblin himself, along with Kazakhan, the Lord Dragon, and Darth Blasphemous. Hail to the dark side. Moniker is out with uh, the nasty crud. Yeah, man, that man is so far past cursed by Nurgle. Nurgle's blessings upon him. All right, and uh, today's topic is storylines, and I believe we are talking about how to bridge them together in your games. Yeah, Sam, I believe that is the case. Yep, and uh, something I also want to talk about, how to do storylines for your specific characters, like sub-arcs. Yeah, don't do like me, where they're like too many of them at one time. <laughs> one per. One per. All right, so intro, and we'll get right to it. Feeling tired at the gaming table? Want to hear foul-mouthed jackasses poke fun at gaming companies when they screw up? Want an honest, street-level opinion from a team of gamers that call it like it is? Then Blunt Force Gamers may be the podcast for you. Listener discretion advised. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. So, storyline, storyline, storyline. The core of any good RPG, be it tabletop, online, bullshitting with your friends, it is a pivotal part of everything, wouldn't you say? Actually, uh, it's, yeah, very pivotal. It's what re- uh, I was just talking to Kazrakan about this earlier, and it's what reinvigorated my interest in playing Ark. Because before, you know, you land on the island and you're, like, just running around, beating the shit out of dinosaurs, taming them. And I just thought it was another survival game. And then they have a storyline. And I'm like, oh my god, interest peaked yet again. Now I've got to play through it and actually, like, figure out, like, the nitty-gritty and, like, what's going on underneath the surface kind of stuff. Yeah. And it happens to a lot of games. I mean, like, fuck, Saints Row would not be as fun without the storyline. Mm-hmm. GTA would be no fun without a storyline. A lot of people like the storyline out of Halo more than just shoot 'em up, shoot 'em up, pow, pow. Yeah. So when it comes to video games or tabletop games, yeah, storyline is hella important. Yeah. yeah. Any manner of storytelling is crucial. You have to have that those story arcs between, you know, books sometimes will have two or three arcs running at the same time within the book. Uh, I know R. Martin is particularly fond of this particular method. How's that meme go? This is how you tell stories to kids and it's a straight line. This is how uh, you tell stories to your buddies and it's like crossroads and all that. And this is how you tell an epic story and there's George R. R. Martin and it just looks like a rail yard of like 50 lines merging from one. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much true. I mean, all three of us here are sitting as GMs. We've all had to tell a story, be it homebrew or, uh, you know, pre-written something a buddy just wants us to run and they keep handing us the papers. But how do you guys handle, as the veteran GMs, uh, bridging story arcs together between your campaigns? You know, like, you guys start off with X and then that X finishes and then you're like, all right, what's the next thing? How do you keep from being like a comic book where the power creep is too high? Um, one way you do this is you weave them together. So, in the DMG I wound up reading a while ago, and I'm not sure which edition, don't ask me, there is uh, an idea about multiple story arcs at once. 
but basically you kind of braid them together. So you go, you finish up with one little section, and then a session or two later you're on a completely different one, and then you finish that, and you're two or three sessions down the road, you've got a third one. And then you basically just run them in one, two, three. Yeah, I was uh, doing the World of Darkness campaign with you guys a while back, and that had five separate storylines going on at the same time. Of course, the big uh, crux of the whole matter is that you guys are player characters can change those storylines by being douche waffles. <laughs> uh, however, the storylines, they all did bridge together in some way. They were all ties. Like, when you guys were talking to Caesar, of course, Caesar had things going on with Khan that you guys didn't know about, but behind the scenes, these two guys were butting heads together, and of course you had the other smaller factions jumping in on that. You had the Nosferatu storyline, which was kind of like a sub-sub-sub storyline, but it was still part of the storyline enough to be integral, given that one of the players was a Nosferatu. So that storyline took much more of a front-row seat and was less sub-sub-sub. So, but all these storylines, however, they... Um, they did come together at a certain point where you guys would have a kind of a, a clash of five armies going on and whatever team you guys picked was going to probably be more than likely the winner because everything in the storyline was pre-scripted as far as how people were going to engage in the combat and how they were going to succeed or fail at said uh, things that I was throwing in front of them. And you guys are the X-Factors. Uh, the players always take front seat, always take the spotlight in the storyline. And as the X-Factor, you guys might have sided with Khan entirely as a group who was destined to fail in the big overall storyline. However, if you guys walk in and you're like, whoa, not leading your thinking, let's just get rocket launchers. <clears throat> uh, rocket launchers, Anfo, some dynamite, we'll just, fuck, we'll blow up Caesar's Tower. How about that? You know, it's like something the Khan would never have thought of, right? Because he had his own plans already in motion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're talking about this, right, the Khan's motivations are, you know, if, if vampires and other long-lived races in particular, they have plans way far out in the future. So they don't always necessarily anticipate technology catching up or changing, like rocket launchers, ANFO, C4... You told me 10 feet of prayer. Was it 10 feet of prayer? to go there. I know you guys were. Yeah. Um, those aren't necessarily things that someone who's born in the 1700s would actually have a really good understanding of. Like, it's true. So, they might, you know, they might understand that they exist and that they might be a threat, but they wouldn't know how to utilize them in the way that someone born, say, 2018, 20. 2000, yeah, you know? I would have to say, though, that campaign was exceptionally uh, complex on the back end because you had the five factions that were vying for supremacy within the city itself, the player characters who are the X-Factor, and I've got to tie these five storylines together. You know, it's, it's got to come to a point where the conclusion hits and the five storylines kind of, one of them will taper off, one of them will elevate itself to become, like, the primary antagonist storyline. The other three will be uh, the X-Factor storylines, and then plus, you know, I threw in storylines that were personal to each one of you, mm -hmm. you know, because the, again, you know, player characters are... They're a part of the world. They're a part of the world, you know, and... And the world has to reflect that. That's the spotlight the should shine on it, you know, I mean, like, how what would Watchmen be like if they never shined the spotlight on Rorschach? 
Yeah. You know, or, or Ozymandias. These are the main characters. These are like the players in that show. And if you don't shine a spotlight on them, you know, and give some background for the players to play in the sandbox with, it becomes less personal of a storyline for them overall. And all these storylines tied in together. And so when we hit the conclusion, when you have so many storylines, they're going to, it's just the conclusion is going to be epic. The more complex the GM makes it, the more difficult it is, uh, the more risk they're going to have trying to have that epic conclusion. But if they pull it off, holy fuck. <laughs> well, here's a little food for thought on that is uh, <clears throat> one of the YouTubers I've been watching lately broke down uh, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, right? He said the Hobbit was like the guy, uh, if it was in D&D setting, you know, where the guy runs basically the entire Hobbit story arc and it's just the players kind of organically go through the world and the GMs, it's, it's like his first time and he has this epic fight planned with a dragon, but they're not at level a dragon would totally kill them. So he has this epic dragon fight happen off screen and he lets sort of the way the players want to tell the story is there an all dwarf party with the one halfling rogue thief in there and how that organically turned into an epic story. And then he shows the opposite where he has the Lord of the Rings trilogy be um, what's going on with a few years down the road, the guy's little brother comes in and they have this super rigid world created game and his little brother goes off and is basically Frodo while meanwhile the rest of the characters who are like super work together and want to have a good time have this epic story and one of them becomes the king. I mean... You got the role-playing power gamer fantasy going on with Legolas, Gimli, and Aragorn off on one side. And then you got the guys who just, they want to trudge through the storyline and get straight to the end of it, but do nothing to work for it. We were playing two hobbits, just marching along. Yeah, that, yeah, that's how he showed how there's two major ways to go through it, and which one is more fun. What is the more epic story that will be remembered for years? And it's the organic one where it's the players and the GM sort of each throw shit in a hat, and whatever falls out, falls out. Absolutely. A lot oh, of yeah. the best story ideas, and this is one I've read and have not had the chance to implement it into a game, and I want to, is the GM should be listening to the players, you know, when they're like... Say you're running a chill or paranoia or some game, you know, with a lot of investigation going on in the background. And the players are sitting there and they're off in their corner doing their thing, you know, of trying to figure out what conspira- what the conspiracy theory is. And they're just making wild shit up. And the GM sits behind and basically, yeah, just like ideas in a hat, just starts writing down their conspiracies as future game ideas within that setting. Mm-hmm. So when they do get to you know a storyline, you know, like one of the players may have guessed that the barkeep actually is in cahoots with the local arms dealer, who's actually in cahoots with the local FBI agent, and the FBI agent is the one responsible for putting drugs on the streets for you know trying to get gang warfare to escalate so the drug or for the gun runner to make money, so the FBI agent can skim off the top and get more uh, money off the gun tra- uh, transfers, and like. The GM will sit there, write this down as a note, and then the players are going along, and they find out the barkeep really is in cahoots with the arms dealer, who is in cahoots with the FBI agent, who is running guns from cartels in Mexico, and the players are like, holy shit, it's true! I freaking did it! I I called it! Yeah, yeah, I fucking called it! You know, they really didn't call it, but at the same time, you know, maybe the GM is writing this shit down... And the player will feel like they call it, you know, it's a sneaky thing to do, but it's a great way to get storyline ideas. Mm -hmm. And it is a really, really good way to reward players. That was me. You (laughs) can't blame me for that. Oh my god, that was, oh. 
Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got your shit kickers on. I got my shit kickers on and I bumped the table. I'm sorry. Okay, back to storyline. But, you know, oh, this suck. goes both ways, right? This, this you know, isn't just the DM's world. It's the player's world as well, right? Um, our buddies over at Purple Hippo, the way that he DMs is that the players have an equal say, if perhaps disproportionately located, in the way the world is and works. Right? Uh, my sister was running an amnesia campaign, and, you know, there was a magical flower that we had bullshat up for world story, right? <laughs> and, um, they found a cave with two of them. It was two of these flowers randomly. The party goes, We want to grow our own. Let's go talk to a gardener in the big town. What's his name? Cisco. Alright. And that's that's how Cisco the Gardener was, you know, brought into that world. Was it just a player bullshitting an idea out? Well, absolutely. Players, um, they do have some sense of ownership over the world. I mean, like, remember Betty? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I didn't even have a name for that NPC. <laughs> it was just some fluff I threw in the background, you know, to help keep the world, you know vibrant and you know give it kind of that three-dimensional aspect and you guys are like that totally looks like a betty and then you know of course when you do meet her she's like what a coincidence my name is betty because <laughs> you know you guys you, you guys gave the, uh, the npc a name or there is of course the infamous thwomp ath thwomp ath <laughs> the uh shop group shopped character that never made an appearance uh, he makes an appearance <laughs> You know what, every time you step in a pile of something Icarus and nasty, it, it is kind of like the consistency of dog poop, but slightly green. Swamp ass has been here. <laughs> <laughs> I do uh, not envy the janitorial staff that deals with him. He's going to make appearances in games eventually. I, I have to do it. <laughs> Just behold, Swamp Ass, merchant extraordinaire. Here, Buy these crab cakes. No, no, I don't want to buy crab cakes from Swamp Ass. <laughs> no, Ugh. thank you. They're handmade. And buy these shamblas. They're super absorbent. <laughs> They're used. They're used. <laughs> Buying used shamblas from a guy named Swamp Ass. Now, how low can you get? This is Swamp Ass here, and I've got a wonderful new product for you. <laughs> Living up with Swamp Ass with a brand new product. <laughs> but that's another fun thing about when it's a group shop storyline or character um, exactly is the stuff just comes out organic and it can be so great like we ended up on that giant um was it we were playing the it wasn't kingmaker i think it was just the homebrew the legacy campaign yeah we were maybe. at uh, narciss and jens and we got on this tangent about uh honey that led us to talking about, oh no, that's intense. And I'm like, oh no, that's in pyramids. And we went off on this whole thing about how it never spoils. I'm like, yeah, and if you freeze it, it it'll never go bad either. And I was like, oh yeah, that's how you make money in, uh, what was it, uh, the Game of Thrones world. You ship watermelons up to the north, let them sit out for a little while, ship them back, crack them open, frozen watermelon, 
And then you come up with a joke of, uh, what was it? There's a White Walker in mine. I was like, no refunds. No refunds. Yeah. There's a White Walker in my house. Watermelon. No refunds. <laughs> you know, shit like that where it's just everyone kicking in. We made a great, like, running gag out of that. That was fun. Yeah, and bridging storylines, uh, I know this is one of the parts of the topic we wanted to get on earlier. Uh, so, like, when you're running a homebrew and... Let's say, uh, for example, one of the most, more common things that happen at a game table is I'll run a game, and I'll end the storyline. The player characters have gone through hell and high water, almost gotten killed multiple times. They've taken out the bad guy Prime, and they end the game, say they side with one empire, decide, you know, fuck it. You know, our in-game stuff is like the Emperor is senile and shit. Post-game, after we're done saving the world, as we are going to manipulate our ways, use our fame and prestige for saving the world to take the Emperor's throne and become a council over the Imperial Senate and just rule that land and retire. You know, so it's game over. The characters have, you know, said post-credits. You know, the, the pop-ups come up a uh, very... Jeez, uh, like the John Belushi movie. Uh, the one where they're in college... They have the post-credit scenes, you know, like after the parade, they show you know what happened to everybody after the game, or I mean after the movie. Well, it's game same way, you know, you guys are like, oh well, we're using our prestige, we do this, game is over. Post-credit scene, the shit runs up, and you know, Kazarkan's character became the minister of commerce, and Darth Blasmus's character became the minister of magic, and blah 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 blah. So, game over. Now I pass this entire world. I take everything here. And I hand it to Kaz. And I'm like, Kaz, run a game. The world has already got, you know, the, the settings built. And these are, you know, some legacy heroes, you know, who have their own established empire. Uh, the only thing I say is start 100 years later, the main characters, you know. Died off. They've, they've died off and it's like their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren running the empire now. Here you go. Here's your storyline. Ooh. Hmm. Okay. And now I'm on the spot, like... What villain would threaten this, and how would they do it? And I, you know, once you do that, you know, you you can. Okay, well, the world now has these things have changed because it's been a hundred years. Why not, right? And you know, things change over time. That's part of the nature of the beast. Cultures change. You know, there's subtle little nods, like probably those first five characters. You know, they threw five or six different traditions down, right? Oh, like, absolutely. Player characters love to throw traditions away and make their own. So It's like Mythbusters for role-playing. Yeah. Those are nice traditions you'd have. It would be a shame if they got knocked off the counter. I reject your traditions and substitute my own. Yeah, really? <laughs> it's not a phase DM. It's not a phase DM. But, you know, you get these festivals and all of a sudden you can start a small story at one of these festivals, explain... You know, something is going on. Explain the gist of the festival. Like, uh, let's run with this. Uh, commerce of festival. Or, a festival of commerce. Because, festival of commerce! Because, you know, it seems like something a dragon would do. Yeah, that sounds very dragon. You're like, I love money changing hands because with the high taxes, more winds up in my hoard. <laughs> <laughs> I also noticed the subtle nod about dragon and, and money when you pin me as the commerce guy. Saw that? I, I see. It's magic, you know. <laughs> it's magical. Um, 
But, you know, so there's basically like a, a variant on a farmer's market or, you know, like some corporations have sprung up using these tax things, right, to, you know, grow into bigger businesses and they throw a festival, you know. So there we got to start. So, you know, it just hit me, right? So I started the game and, you know, ended up the player characters take over the empire. We get several generations later. It's the great-grandchildren of the Imperials. New player characters are growing up in the Empire. There's a festival of commerce. And guess what? With all that money running around, that's going to attract thieves like a motherfucker. So suddenly, thieves and assassins show up, start screwing around, and the player characters, who are citizens of this very wealthy and prosperous Empire, founded by heroes, is now just utterly fucking ransacked. And now there's a king's ransom to get that money back. And guess what? The player characters... Just happened by the fates to be the ones that get to the first nuggets of information to carry them along on an adventure. And boom, you now have a crime adventure. Exactly. Now you have a crime adventure. The player characters wind up, you know, in the drunk tank with one of the captured uh, thieves who gives, you know, lets a little bit of information slip away. And the player characters can just be like, we can retire as kings if we can find that money. Let's do it. There you go. You got got a crime solving adventure right there. Bam! And so you can just run the game from that point on and you used to already have the legacy from the first game and then you got the second game. And now if we bridge it even further, the player characters succeed. We're, we're going to assume they succeed. They wind up in a far off land that's poor and destitute. It's like a, a desert economy, we'll say. You know, they've got, they've got one river and that's all they're farming. That's it. And almost nothing for livestock or food. It's basically like the downfall of the Egyptian Empire when it was turning into grasslands from lush fauna and flora. Ah, uh, yes, right after the fall of the Roman Republic. Exactly. So, so it's mostly savanna and grasslands these people live in. The player characters wind up getting there. They get the King's Ransom, and they find out the only reason that these uh, thieves and assassins stole all of this money was because they wanted to finance a, a effort to rejuvenate the empire that they love so much, their own home empire. So then that leaves the question, you know, do the player characters stay there and actually help these people with all their newfound wealth? Or do they go back and take the money of their old empire and just let that the new one just crumble? But we're going to say they succeed, and then suddenly we end on a cliffhanger. Like the player characters are in the treasure room. They're facing down Bambata, you know, the big treasure keeper guy who's got like three swords because he's so badass. He can hold three swords. Ones with his dick. Because we know someone. Or something, man. This is, the dude is so badass. He fights with three swords, not he's just two. He's a Luxodon. He's he, got a trunk. He's got sure. a trunk or some shit, right? So we, we ended on a cliffhanger whether the player characters succeed or fail. Because, you know, we want to leave this world with an ambiguous ending for the next GM. And now, 200 years later. So we're 400 years from the first campaign setting. Ah, 400. Fuck it. <laughs> New GMs are making up shit all the time. And that's one thing a GM has in their power, is they tell God how time works. <laughs> <clears throat> their adventure took a hundred years because they took a jump through time, 70 years. There, there, was a, there was a time bubble. And because of time dilation, and if we get Final Fantasy VIII, time compression. And so now the game winds up in Blasphemous' hands a hundred years later. Mm. Two hundred years later. Some god-awful amount. All right. Ah. 200, 100. 
Numbers. Fuck. God. Numbers hard. I I was bad at arithmancy, okay? So now the now the campaign winds up in Blasphemous's hands. Have fun! However, nothing has changed. We, we open up on a mystery, alright? So let's say Kazrakan says nothing has changed in those 200 years. The old heroes, we don't know if they won or failed, and the Savannah is still in a state of decay. How would you start that game? Uh, at this point, I would start us so that the characters are actually in a different land entirely. Okay. And they need to go and figure out what happened. So they have to travel to the last place the adventures were known to be. They get there and find that everyone is like frozen in time. So now they need to find a way to unfreeze that to let events unfold. Because some ancient artifact thingamajigger that was in the treasure hoard has like completely frozen all of them. And things need to happen here because it's starting to have ripple effects throughout the world. There's storms, there's, you know, god figures appear and fall as quick as you can bet. So so we've gone from standard fantasy to murder mist or, well, to uh, crime fest. Ocean's Eleven crime fest to magical campaign. Exactly. High magic. But it all ties together. Yep. See? And so, this all happened because these first people saved the world once. So now we've gotten three distinct large campaigns that have happened over the course of the lifespan of this world. And they've done so organically. Mm-hmm. Which is super cool. But it tells, you know, it, it reminds us that as DMs, we don't need to be limited to one story arc. Or you one know, type of story. Right. Like, one example, I think, um, your adventurers piss off a noble somehow, right? Cause it's he not was, hard to do. It's not hard to do. Because he was financing bandits because he wanted that lord over there to go down, and that's the one who hired the adventurers. Player characters take out the bandits. Lord has now wasted all that money. He's pissed. Fuck those fuckers. He hires assassins. And, you know, that's, this could tie right back in the first campaign, so... Blasphemous is running the campaign, and he says there's an artifact in there that has cast a time freeze curse. Big one. A big one. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that in the first campaign, that local lord that you mentioned financed for this curse to take place, wound up in the treasury in the second campaign, was supposed to freeze the Empire because he was pissed at the player characters, but it did not go off on time. Haha, <laughs> time. <laughs> However, because it wound up in the coffers of another empire under somebody very similar as to whom it was supposed to go under, that's when the curse went off. So it was a delayed reaction curse that kind of didn't work out properly. So now we've tied all three together with one NPC who was pissed at the player characters in the first campaign. Yeah. And he, funny enough, his one of his descendants is one of the new player characters. That would be great. So you so, can do this because you know, five hundred years, four hundred years. Especially when you have that a or that super typical character that's I'm an orphan. I'm so edgy. Guess what, kiddo? You're the linchpin. <laughs> you're actually of noble blood, and you're the reason why this campaign exists. Fuck you. Been there, done that. <laughs> Been there, that. done that. <laughs> so that's that's uh, that's an example right there between three GMs as to how you can tie together different storylines from different GMs in the same world. Tying together storylines is actually phenomenally easy. 
uh, even with the same player characters. So let's say the first campaign takes place, big calamity happens and the Empire falls because their coffers get robbed and the player characters are the Imperial Senate. Everybody's looking to them as heroes. Well, if the heroes have to go into the second campaign adventure to track down the money, well, then we've still got the mystery. We've mm-hmm. still got the crime drama going on. Mm-hmm. And if they wind up in the desert, you know, sometime later, and they're a lot older, their empire is no, now no longer flourishing, but there's still that moral area. Do we take the money away from these people? Do we incorporate them into our empire? Do we let them stand on their own and mm-hmm. recognize their sovereignty? You have a whole slew of different choices to make, and it's still the same campaign world, just we've taken it from 400, 300 years in that kind of time frame to 40 to 50 years. Yeah. So we've, we've boiled it down a lot. So, you know, by the time we get to the very end of the third campaign with the third GM, it could be the same player characters, but they're near the ass end of their, their lifespan. lifespan. Unless they're, you know, Unless super they're... high level and get something like immortality from Druid or something like that. Absolutely. Or There's else. other wacky things. Like or other happen. wacky things. Oh, yeah. A god did it. That too. I mean... Because when you're, when you're in there, it's not just a wizard did it. A god could just be like, meh. <laughs> yeah, but relying too much on gods is kind of a fallacy of jamming. Mm-hmm. Uh, because basically when you pull in a god, you're basically pulling in your own personal avatar at the moment. If you pull in a god of savagery, that means the GM is not having a good time and he just wants to fuck with the player characters. And he sends some savage wild beast god at him. It's basically the GM going, here's my avatar, fuck you. Well, see, I play it off a different way where gods come in and characters who are act- players who are acting a certain way with their character, the god could step in and be like, you know what? Boop. Here's a little change in your, uh, in your background, your whole kit and caboodle there. Where you now have a different subset of story you could go through. God could, one of the gods could like curse this one player for you know waggling his ass at the fucking moon god statue. So now it's like, oh, we got to find a way to remove this curse or use the curse to my advantage. Which player characters are wont to do? Exactly. Oh, look, it's a goblin dong. <laughs> How do we pay homage to the goblin god? I don't know. With an offering from my tushy. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that's definitely some of the fun stuff with story arc. And something I like to do is, especially when I see in my groups, because I like to have four to five people, no more, is um, have them sit down, play play the game a couple times. If I see someone who isn't really getting spotlight time, is I'll write a small story arc, a sub arc, just for them. Oh, they get a call from one of the family members. I had them put in their, um, their backstory backstory for me. And I'll be like, all right, you get a letter, and it's written by your character's younger sister. And she's like, you know, shit has hit the fan. The, the family farm is, you know, being taken over. You know, they're going to drag her and your mom off on into slavery because your dad made a bad bet. So now they can be like, all right, I got to go run and do this shit, bring the whole group with them, sub-story arc to fill some time. Especially if a player's missing, like someone's out on deployment or something. Yes, and this this brings up a very good point. A DM should be watching for when your players are and are not engaging. It's kind of hard to do when they're all busy staring at a cell phone. Yes, there's that, but, you know, let's also just keep in mind that if a player is not engaging with the world very well, the GM should be able to cock up a story 
almost off the cuff to re-engage them, to tie them back in. You know, personal quests, story arcs of family in distress, and, you know, bandits in the local town. Or somebody broke into their house and killed their dog. Yeah, yeah. Or we John Wick this. So, yeah, that's when you go into an epic campaign and start, you know, fucking I throw this uh, acid splash and it goes all the way around the world the long way to hit them. So your characters are a retired assassin from a shadowy underworld. You have no desire to go back into it. So it's going to be hard as shit to bring you into this campaign. All right, your dog dies. Mother... Everybody must die. (laughs) (laughs) And we get three epic movies. And we get three epic movies. Yeah. That's good GMing right there. Kill the dog. (laughs) Yeah, and sometimes it is something that simple. But bringing these up bringing your character's stories into the world makes them feel involved. Makes their character feel like the world is real. Mm-hmm. And the world actually has enough of a damn to give that they're important. Somehow. Even if it is just, you're the unlucky sod that bandits chose to pick on. Well, it's because, straight up, you know, the player characters are the ones with the spotlight on them. They're never in the limelight. And one of the fallacies of GMing I've seen way too much, and I've done it in the past uh, a few times, and I caught myself after the fact that I'm like, I gotta cool that shit, is um, they'll make the NPCs cooler than the PCs. Mm-hmm. NPCs should never be cooler than the player characters as far as uh, the causality goes. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever there's a, ca- a ripple effect or a cause and effect going on, the player character should be at the center of it because they're the focus of the storyline. All storylines should be written with that factor that the player characters are going to show up and be the main characters of the book. Mm-hmm. You know, the main characters are 12 dwarves and a hobbit. And if you write the storyline that, oh, you know, it's actually Gandalf who's, you know, the big mover and shaker the whole time. It kind of takes away from the player characters. And that's how you fix it, is what basically happened with Gandalf. He kept having to run off. He wanted to do his own thing, so it left the players to do their stuff, and then, oh, your your big badass glass cannon could be out of frame for legit story reasons, and your players can go through and run the story. Or, you know, like even the, the fact that Gandalf is, you know, if he was the NPC of the storyline, he's obviously way cooler and more powerful than the player characters because he fights a fucking Balrog with his sword. Well, they're both demi-angels. They're they're both demi-angels, but regardless, Gandalf is wearing a pointy hat and has shit for armor class. Yeah. And some of the spells he's casting are like, in the D&D universe, are actually really low. Like, heat metal. Woo! Charm animal. Wow! Yeah, so he's casting some low-level spells, but then he takes on a motherfucking Balrog, but the whole thing happens off-screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he tells him to run. He's playing Exposition Machine. He's not exactly super helpful uh, when they are in the Mines of Moria. He's just like, oh, we wait until we uh, catch a breeze of fresh air. Wow, that's... Uh, that, Real that... descriptive there, dude. Wow, you know, that's not just descriptive, dude. That's cryptic as fuck. Thanks. Thanks for the help there, Gandalf. But then he fights the Balrog, and that happens off-screen. And the player characters, uh, again, are left to run away from the giant horde of orcs and goblins and big cave trolls and shit. And then when Gandalf does return, he's just like, I'll help, but 
I'll do what I can, but whenever he does help further down the storyline, it's always a storyline help out. Mm -hmm. He's never there primarily in the middle of combat swinging his sword again. We know he could take on a fucking Balrog, but instead he's busy, uh, you know, watching Grim and Wormtongue get thrown down a stairway. Mm -hmm. You know, he's just helping out with more storyline stuff. You know, like they need Gandalf to get the king well again, but that's about it. You know, well, he, he also uh, convinces the halfling to go up and, well, in the movies at least, to go and light the uh, beacon of Gondor. Yeah. Which, well, which is kind of like the GM telling the player character, you know, that like the player character's like, God, I'm out of ideas. And the GM's like, hmm, it would know, be a shame if somebody lit the beacon. Mm-hmm. Huh. Wonder what would happen if that took place. Yeah, Let's go do a, it. So he's, he's basically, Gandalf is the exposition machine who's constantly planting the seeds of adventure into the player characters, helping prod them along. That's pretty much his role. And he's got cool fireworks. And he's got cool fireworks. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then the only spells you see him cast that are big are pretty much just trying to do counter magic. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he's basically just, oh, you're casting a ninth level meteor storm. Let's say no. Well, it's like the... they can't take that. It's like the whole argument everybody had about the you know the giant eagle at the beginning. It's like, why don't we get the fellowship, put them on the giant eagles, fly them over there, drop the ring of Mount Doom, bloop, fifteen minute story done. Well, it wouldn't be that epic of a story to begin with, exactly. Right? And I think there's fan theories that say that was Gandalf's plan in the first place. The line, fly you fools, right? Still, if Gandalf had played a bigger role in the story, it would not have been anywhere near as epic or as, you know, tugging on the heartstrings in some places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's fine. You know, you can have your cool NPCs, but, like, Goblin is running a campaign using an open source hero, uh, Jenny Everywhere. Yeah, Jenny Everywhere. Who's pretty much only power is she is everywhere and every every time she makes a great exposition machine uh if you're not familiar with her uh dear listeners look up jenny everywhere she's an open source character and all rights reversed you feel free to write any stories you want pretty much including her and that that is her power she just exists in all places at all times that's it and i'm like what could be a better exposition machine <laughs> There really isn't one. She's not a godlike character. I mean, you can you, you can, can walk her. up with a fucking forty-five and put two in the back of her skull and Jimmy Hoffa her ass. She probably knows it was coming because she's seen it before, given that she's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And every when, so she'll just be But there. if it happens, oh, that means that she knows it's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that's another thing that would leave the player characters doubting. They're like, bam, bam, yeah, she's dead. And it's like, uh, dude, you realize she exists at all points in time. Uh, that means she knows that this was going to happen. That means she let you put two in the back of her head. Mm-hmm. Fuck. Fuck! That means she knows something, still. <laughs> Damn yeah! But she serves as a great exposition machine that, you know, come in and throw out, you know, a few cryptic tips and, you know, just walk away with a big grin on her face and let you guys figure it out. Because she is kind of like a Gandalf character in that sort of sense. She can do pretty much anything she wants. She knows the winning lotto numbers before they're even pulled. Mm-hmm. She knows the winning lotto before the lotto becomes the lotto. Exactly. She knows the winning lotto before the lotto becomes... Lotto. She knows this shit before it happens. So, you know, bring her in for a brief, you know, Gandalf moment to, you know, have a small conversation with the player characters. You know, sip on her Pepsi and then walk away and leave the player characters going, well, she knows more than we do. 
maybe she's right. But god damn it, why does she have to be so fucking cryptic instead of just spell it out? Mm-hmm. Well, it's because you can't have proper exposition without being cryptic. Yeah. Like, if you're doing just giving them the answers, it's not an adventure. It's yeah. a storybook. And a storybook does not an adventure make. The pop-up book of phobias. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, storyline can be used for great good if it's well done. And that's all we want out of the fandoms we watch or read or any of that is we want a good story. I don't care if you put in all new characters, it's the goddamn Rainbow League of whatever the fuck. If you got a good story, I'll watch, I'll read, I'll listen. And that's what we're really lacking these days. And, you know, I've sat in with some GMs on their games, and they've got some cool storylines, and they've got some stuff going on, and hell, I ran a one-off random campaign. I felt like it was an okay story, and some of the guys came up to me later and were like, yeah, that was really fun. But... <clears throat> Yeah, that's really what it ends up coming down to is can you get them engaged in the story of why, not just how. Yeah. I... My philosophy on it is make the game personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That, that's all I can do from my point of view is make the game as personal as I can, where player characters' choices matter, and if they write down stuff in their background, again, like if they got a little sister who's got a farm, and their dad makes bad bets, and he's a, a fucking gambling addict... That's a great in way for me to make the game, the storyline, because if there's a Slaver's Guild or a Pirate's Guild actually already pre-scripted in the game, I can just include them and be like, well, not only are we building on the world lore more, we're also building on your personal lore. Mm-hmm. And I'll mesh these two things together to make the player character and the world more synergetic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what that- was it? Um, we, I, I was planning to do a dragon-based campaign. And Surprise! It's since, it's since fallen by the wayside. Surprise! Wait, was that the one we had done? Yes. Okay. One of the player characters at the time um, didn't like the idea of magical creatures breeding happily. So, like, the offspring would have very weird mutations. So, they wanted their character to be, like, a half dragon, but. Like someone had taken an elf and stretched it over a dragon's skeletal system. So, like, soft skinned, pointy eared. That's pretty fucking gross. Pretty fucking gross. (laughs) That's awesome. I love it. I'll give you three guesses. I don't need three guesses, but it's still pretty gross. So I'm like, how does this happen? Okay. This will be interesting. So I had her this character be the bastard offspring of one of the dragon gods and an elf but because he was told not to he covered it up yanked the divinity from this character and that is what resulted in this misshapen form I play a green dragon named Paprika who are you? I am Paprika the Magnificent green dragon extraordinaire so. And I smell strangely of obsession. <laughs> obsession for worms. <laughs> so, you know, this character, I, you know, to make this better, the character was a uh, cleric variant. So I'm like, yeah, this is just too good not of a chance to take. Or a black dragon who's a hairdresser. <laughs> we'll name him Sweeney. <laughs> Very sharp hands. He has the sharpest shears in all the West Side. 
That's how I roll. Now, yeah. mind you, this character never got to explore this because the campaign never got off the ground. Much to the shame. Yes, that's on me. Yes, I know. Eh, the other part was I don't think we've ever gotten that group of people back together to try and get it going. But nah. It's a lovey. But I was going to wrap that in as this character's personal story arc. And my actual intent with that campaign was to get one story arc, or maybe three, for each player character and weave that as the central tapestry of story. It would have been a lot of fun if I had gotten off my ass. I admit this, but it's, you know, tying story arcs together is really only so simple as finding the one common point. <laughs> Sorry, man. I was just visualizing a blue dragon who names herself Belle. And then, like, just the visual image hit me of, like, a, an adult-sized blue dragon, you know. So we're talking something the size of a redwood tree romping through flowers. <laughs> <laughs> just the stomps, the stomps, the stomping flowers everywhere, and they're just having a great fucking time. <laughs> just the middle image hit me, and it's like, fuck, that's messed up. <laughs> it's just a blue dragon. Just a dragon having fun in a field of flowers is fucking in here. <laughs> Strange. <laughs> Oh god, I can just see it. it's like um romping around like a puppy. <laughs> uh. Giggling until they drool on themselves kind of shit. You know, that much fun. Oh, that must be a lot of fun with a brass dragon, you know, they just start leaking the acid. <laughs> oh, that's one thing I fucking hate about dragons though. Yeah. They're all color coded. I that's where I definitely take that from you about the whole dragons just look however and they all have Based on their lineages, random accoutrements, you know. Yeah, it's a good way to do it. I, I, I'm actually kind of surprised, though. You know, the SJW crowd hasn't caught on to this. That the blue dragons and black dragons and white dragons and bronze dragons and the unobtainium dragons and the obsidian dragons and the cloud dragons. That they're all characterized by basically, like, a very defining trait that makes them very different than everybody else kind of shit. Like, the gold dragons or platinum dragons are always all good and nice and happy. But there's only one platinum dragon. Well, to the to the degree, they're nice and happy and stuff. But then you run into a black dragon, and he's going to put a, a crossbow turn, like, 90 degrees the wrong direction to your head and jack your wagon. Right? Don't, don't forget, he's also the uh, second dumbest dragon. Yeah, but we, we, we cannot uh, classify people. But you know, we can't be like, oh, that's a red human. They live out in the plains in, in strange circular tents. And that's a white dragon. They they, they walk, uh, that's a white human. They, they go around the world looking for spices and dominating everything in their path. And that's a black <laughs> dragon. It just They're going to sell off their own kind, but they make the best chicken ever. You can't do this shit. You can't. Oh, that's a yellow dragon. Watch out. They're very imperialistic. Uh, and they, they really don't like having their kind talked about in a bad way. And they multiply like crazy. And they multiply like motherfuckers. Right? Oh, and that that's a brown dragon. They explode on on contact. Um, and it stinks. Yeah, they, they, they just run up, you know, fuck sheep and explode. We, we cannot do this with people, but we can do it with fictional characters that are dragons, because dragons aren't people, apparently. Well, remember, Dra Fuckers. dragon lives matter. <laughs> we'll end every single one of you fucks. <laughs> I, I just think it's kind of funny, though, because, I mean, like, when we're running a storyline, and I've done this, 
as I will put out, you know, like there's this green dragon, uh, and I did a story like like uh, on this one. There was a green dragon running a temple out in the middle of the desert, which is just batshit weird. Green dragons aren't desert oriented. creatures or oriented anyway by the book. But there's a green dragon out there, and of course the player characters, they stock up on acid, 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 and more acid resistance. They go out there to deal with the shenanigans of this. Not only do they find out that the green dragon is an okay dude, and he's just got his own little slice of life and doesn't care to dominate anything beyond the desert. He's got his worshippers, he's got his temple, he's happy. Leave him alone. He's taking care of his people. He's a great dude, actually, and very funny. But then they decide to fight him anyway, and find out that he breathes lightning. <laughs> and he has resistances to fire. The total stuff that you would not expect out of a green-scaled dragon, right? There was no acid involved, and he lived in a desert, and he had an affinity for water. That's where his temple was built, was in an oasis. It was his little slice of life. And then, of course, when he goes, and his frills, you know expand out and they're like oh my god acid attack incoming and lightning bolt and it's like what the fuck <laughs> blew my player characters minds they knew that my world that i was running at that time you could not look at it, the scales of a dragon and go i know what it's, it's it's a swamp dwelling dragon that breathes acid or it's a sky dragon that breathes cold no fuck you no no yeah, it still blows my mind that blue dragons are the desert dwellers. It makes sense. They're aerial predators, so they're they're meant to their scales are meant to blend with the sky above, not the ground below. But their bellies are like white. They're yeah. like clouds. Yeah, so and why are they blue from if you look at them from above it it makes no sense. Because most things aren't going to lunge on top of a blue dragon from above the sky. Except for a player character. Player characters break all the fucking rules when it comes to this shit. You'll have a player character and they'll be like out there with a spyglass and they'll be like, wait, that cloud is moving wrong. It's going against the wind. It must be a dragon. And then they'll just like teleport above the dragon and be like, okay, I brought the monk with me. Monk, roll the pin his wings. <laughs> yeah, and the monk will be like, hi, this is Lucha. You know, then, yeah. They'll do that kind of shit. Player characters break all the fucking rules. <laughs> No, when it comes to this, though, I mean, when you invent your storyline for your game world and you're coming up with shit, break rules, but keep it fair. Like, when I did the dragon stuff, that was just swaps right across the board. It was still the same challenge rating. It was still the same. It was still a breath weapon. All I did was change the breath weapon from an equivalent breath weapon from one to another. It's, it's no different from swapping out the ammo in your shotgun. Mm-hmm. You know, from going from birdshot to buckshot, depending on the situation. Or well, if the, you really need to kill it, slugs. Or, or solid slugs. You know, so when you're building your game world, and when you're bridging this shit, uh, let's say I ran that game world we all started with in the very beginning. It was a standard fantasy game. Player characters won. Kazrakan takes it over. It becomes a crime-solving Ocean's Eleven mystery kind of shit. You take it over, it becomes a magical campaign. Next GM comes in, he's like, okay, well, there's residual effects from the magic. All right. And now, you know, like, the elves are starting to mutate. We get Phoenix elves, or we start getting, you know, dragons who are palette-swapped between different abilities and stuff. They're returning to the source kind of shit. Instead mm -hmm. of splitting off into different kinds of dragons, they're becoming one dragon race. 
And then we get to, like, a Dark Crystal moment where there's actually, like, this one dragon who's held in cryosleep off off the plane who's, like, the progenitor of all dragons, including Tiamat and Bahamut. And this is, like, the source, and the, the player characters are having to go and repair the source. So we've gone from standard fantasy low-level campaign to a mid-level campaign to a high-level campaign. and to then an we extra get planar. And then we get the extra planar, you know, epic-level campaign. So we got, like, four stages of a campaign... Right there, easy breezy, and by the time the fourth GM takes it over, let's say the moniker takes it over, and he goes for the super epic shit. Good luck to him. Well, not only good luck to him, but we've also got a, a band of characters who have been fighting through all this shit for a long time, all together, and four different GMs could bridge all these storylines together and have this epic conclusion where if they heal this big badass dragon, they actually heal the world, the desert will be returned, the time... Wibbliness. Wibbliness from the artifact that was built to fuck over the first player characters will be repaired. But all the rules up and to the point, you know, like, all the rules get thrown out the window kind of shit when you get to Epic. And so, you know, the GM could do this kind of shit with a dragon. You know, he's got a black dragon that shows up, but it's got blue dragon attributes. Mm. They, they just palette swapped the skin around. You know, they think they're fighting Scorpion, but it's actually Sub-Zero. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can do a lot of neat shit with that. And when you're bridging storylines together... It's all about finding the one point of common. It's, it's finding, yeah, that one point of commonplace. Because I have done a lot. We did the Legacy campaign in the past. And that was run by two previous GMs before me. And in the Legacy campaign, the last GM did not leave it open. After the first game, he's just like, I'll just pass along the world. And the next GM ran it. And he's like, well... I'm done with this world, but, you know, somebody else wants to take it. And so it was up to me when I took over that world. I looked at him like, fuck. He destroyed the world. He ended it. Flat out. But there was one player character who was like, screw it. It's my world, my home. I'm like, okay. All right. I got a time egg where people are held in, like, suspended animus over the time for the world to naturally heal itself and then he's gonna pop the bubble like an arc I, I know I'm going back to that but this was before that game existed for fuck's sake anyway <laughs> he had the time bubble and he was gonna pop that and release all the people back over the world again so they could rebuild society or society's plural or society's plural and then you guys get into the legacy campaign and that kind of that shit happened and I believe Kazarkan I let you have it so you got to find that commonality Whoa. because the, the, the last uh, two groups of player characters I ran through that world failed, which triggers the doomsday scenario, the end of the world scenario. All shit is done. How now do you what, repair that? You're gonna well, have, yeah. Now what happens I with it on to me? He I passed it on to whoever wants to fucking take there it next. Those are the rules. Yep. Whoever wants to take it has the, the great world. divergence. Yes. The great divergence. So if I remember right, there was a point where my character had married my character the Asmar had married a tiefling to you know more or less fill up the last slot of the of the prophecy that'll bring about a new creature to, yeah to fulfill a prophecy so now there's my common link that's the key that's that messes with the world getting fucked because this prophecy existed for millions of years or whatever. A creature born on the material plane who is both blooded by heaven and hell, but belongs to neither. Exactly. So they cannot be uh, thrown out of the primaterial plane by the gods themselves. Exactly. So now, 
if they had a little bit of time, they pull the arc story again. You've got your new cultures. Thousands of years down the way. Millions of years down the way. You've got new cultures that stemmed from this one creature, which was supposed to end the war between heavens and hell. And now they, they did that by nuking, you know, by letting things run their course and everything getting nuked to fuck. And just keeping the innocent bystanders out of it. So now you've got this this fresh world all over again and the war in heaven and hell has stopped because everything's been blown up so too is heaven and hell hustle see that, that's that's the thing about bridging campaigns though is uh, like the legacy campaign like you said you got to find that one uh, trigger which mm. will tie together the old campaign plus the new campaign you just find that one thing that, you know, brings it together, and then, like, even hundreds of thousands of years down the line, the, the angel-demon person, you know, the, the crux capacitor, he gets shit all done, and then, like, the player characters, you know, they, they walk out, and then they find, like, these ancient ruins that are not supposed to exist. We're the first people on this world. How can there be ruins? That, that would be the thing. Is, you know, you get the, the first player characters going out there, they're explorers, and they come across these great mega cities from... Eons, eons, past. eons past, and they're like, this this shit shouldn't exist. We're the first people in this land. Mm -hmm. So then it becomes this big exploration mission of finding out that this world is still caught in a perpetual cycle of death and decay and rebirth because of bad shit. Because it's never been broken. It's, it's just been the matrixed. Yeah, the, the whole world has been matrixed so fucking much. Well, see, I was going with a different route with the passing on. Is I was saying that that world, that plane was devoured by that great beast so now everything has been flung out of it all of the outworlders and a whole bunch of other pieces have now fallen into the realm that i homebrewed myself so it ties it into things i've already got in motion true so now true. uh the one of the gods that had um been a big player in our group running has now chosen a new champion to try and protect this world. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then there are other deities that they're going to have to choose champions as well, just like when we ran it, where champions were chosen, but we ended up failing. <laughs> Spectacular. You weren't the first group to fail, trust no. me. Uh, but the thing is, though, um, like, you guys have two different takes on it, which is just fucking awesome because that's the way a living world should work. Mm -hmm. And in his setting, like, all the outworlders did, they got thrown off. So you could continue the world the way you are, and the way you are continuing the world, you could do, and they're still equally legitimate. Mm -hmm. And, technically, with the way that it works out, you could actually just make them both as fully canon, mm -hmm. right? When the world failed, the, the little bubble of safety was not sent everywhere else, but the way that the world was destroyed did just shatter the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Now you've got inhabitants from world A, legacy world, on mm. blasphemous homebrew world, and back on their own world as equally valid survivors long distant. Mm -hmm. exactly. And that's where the multiplanar portion comes in is there's a prime material world, but from my understanding there's a whole bunch of realities that are prime material planes that are all just 
like shadows. They're just off. You know, they're a second off from each other. They're they're slightly different until yeah, you get to the other end. Yeah, it's kind of like the multiversal um, theories here. You know, like fucking, there is a me somewhere out there who just has naturally growing blue hair. There's a me out there somewhere who's happy. Oh, there's, wow, one of you with hair. That's a weird thought. Yeah, there, there's a me out there. Somewhere out there in the multiverse, there's a me with a full head of hair. There's also versions of you that are female, animals, or anything else that you can think of. Yeah. So, exactly, though. When you get to the primaterial plane, there could be another primaterial plane where the player characters did succeed. Mm-hmm. But didn't do it right. Yep. You know, and things change. They succeeded in the wrong way, kind of shit. Because there is, there that is the most bittersweet thing to pull on players is when they fucking win and they lose at the same time. Thank you, sir. Anyway, uh, we're running up on the one hour mark here. Right on. Uh, so I suppose our best thing to do is our closing statements. Um, so on your guys's big story arc stuff, what if what's the one thing you could tell to a GM or a player? You know, in 150 characters or less. <laughs> okay, okay. Final tweets. <laughs> Final tweet. Uh, <laughs> just advice to give them about um, arcs in general. You can have both local story arcs and world-spanning story arcs, and you can tie them together. It's just finding how the pieces fit. Right, A lot of stories are built up of very small localized spaces that are tied together by the one little fucker off in the distance playing the fiddle. I would have to say, starting off, for new GMs, uh, GMs who are in their first uh, three to five years of actually like playing games, so if you're a new dice roller, this is probably going to be best for you. Older GMs, this is kind of old hat. Play as many games as you can with as many different GMs as you can. Uh, take what you like, put it in a bag, walk away with it. I'm saying this <laughs> not uh, literally. Don't put things in bags and walk away with them. You'll get in trouble. Trust me, three hots in a cot, I know. However... Um, if there's storyline things that can take place, you know, like a GM does something that's really cool and the players get ramped up about that, put that in your notebook. Keep that for later. If they do something you don't like, like they, they're a controversial GM or they're an aggressive GM, take lessons from that. Put that in your notebook as do nots. So for the first three to five years, uh, go to conventions, play convention games, go to homebrew games, play online games play whatever you can with as many watch games on youtube watch games on youtube or podcasts uh take notes mental notes physical notes whatever and when you start actually running your games you will be a much better gm and much more better prepared for it if you've already uh, basically studied a playbook that's essentially it is just study the football playbook take the good plays run with them well my best thoughts as i'm the junior GM here is take like they're saying take what you like and run with it but when it comes to uh, running a storyline if you have the capacity to make it more personal for your players do it put a storyline in there find out what your characters you know really get jazzed about what your characters absolutely hate and sometimes you gotta do a thing that they absolutely hate to get them to move on from the goddamn bone they've got in their jaws 
Sometimes you got to snap something. Sometimes you just got to describe things a certain way, set the mood. But definitely to keep your players in, make it something where they're interacting with the world. This is Darth Blasphemous signing off. Cathar to the skies. Game Goblin signing out. <laughs>